Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your Christianity shitposter and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with David Cognon and David Roberts. David Cognon is an author, speaker, and scholar working in the area of theology and culture. David Roberts is the youth pastor at Watershed, a progressive non-denominational church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is also a recent graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Sean Della Croce. Sean is a singer-songwriter from Nashville. You can get connected with both David Cogden and David Roberts and Sean Della Croce and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have both D-Rob and D-Kong, uh, at this point, veterans of a people's theology, uh, formerly religionless church. Uh, D-Kong, David Cogden, you've been on this a few times. And then uh, David Roberts, you have been on this podcast one other time. And we all, about a, over a year and a half ago now, had a conversation regarding kind of the emergent church the future of progressive Christianity and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have a little different conversation now because we've we've been kind of in conversation over the last couple months uh, regarding a um, inevitable conversation that will be happening. Uh, and uh, so anyway, but before we dive into the details of that, I, I have to ask you once again, David uh, Cogden, you're probably sick and tired of it, but who is David Cogden to David Cogden? And then I'll ask D-Rob as well. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's always a pleasure with you, Mason. Um, I am, uh, I'm trying to find out maybe some new answers for this question. I suppose I, I'm a wandering, uh, theologian in the wilderness trying to figure out what my, uh, vocational career life goals are, but, um, I guess, um, yeah, I'm an editor. I'm a theologian. I write and I teach and I, um, edit people's books and, um, but I do a little bit of religion on the side. Sort of a post-Christian existentialist is how I call myself now. Wonderful. David Roberts, how about you? Well, other than the, you know, the obvious uh, pastor, husband, father. Uh... You're just the, you're, you're the epitome of that, of that brand, of that shtick on Twitter. Uh, if it wasn't clear, uh, I'm joking. I mean, I technically am all of those things, but I was poking fun at a... Uh, yes, a Twitter archetype uh, that um, the DMs frequently. Yes, but uh, I uh, I am a pastor. I'm a youth pastor at a at a uh, I guess you'd call it a progressive ish uh, post or ex evangelical uh, type church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Uh, my main role there is uh, as youth pastor. I'm on the board of uh, Launchpad Partners, which is a Nonprofit uh, that is trying to create either through planting or helping transition churches to become um, more progressive, inclusive, fully open and affirming to the LGBTQIA community. And uh, like hopefully everyone listening to this podcast, or at least depending on uh, when you release it, I am kind of quarantined in my house, uh, physical distancing from the rest of society. Which I'm sure as an introvert, you're very pleased with. You know, you'd think that, but when I, as an introvert, have to be quarantined with the rest of my family, and they all <laughs> also have to be here at the same time, it doesn't quite check those uh, introvert 
uh, boxes that I think uh, many introvert parents who are probably experiencing the same thing mm-hmm. were hoping for when they envisioned their perfect quarantine. Right. How about how about you, uh, David Cogden? I, I, you're an introvert, right? I am. So how <laughs> yes. how has the quarantine experience been like for you? Uh, well, my kids are. Uh, I mean, they want to play with me all the time, but they've learned that I have boundaries on my accessibility. So I spent about five hours today in pretty much uninterrupted work time, mm. which is nice. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I, I am like D Rob. I don't find being cooped up in the house uh, with the whole family, a particularly energizing or refreshing experience uh, only because uh, it is, there is constant activity of some kind around me, uh, noise and somebody's upset. <laughs> There's just something going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do tend to find ways to lock myself in a room or go out to, you know, out, go outside and find a table and a chair. Um, We'll see though. Today was only day one, so I, I have yet to experience the full, ex- the full manifestation of uh, the self quarantine, uh, you know, experience. So we'll, you know, check check back in with me in a week, and I will let you know how I'm handling this. Yeah, I mean, you'll probably have a a, a really frizzy beard and just droopy <laughs> eyes and bags under your eyes, and I mean, I, I'm sure it'll be very obvious of how you're doing. I mean, this is day three. In our house, uh, I think we're on our eighth viewing of Frozen Two. Thank you, Disney Plus, for uh, releasing that early. I, uh, at all times now, I have Lost in the Woods in a perpetual loop in my head. Uh, which don't get me wrong, there are worse songs. It's pretty catchy. Uh, I like that there's a random '80s ballad in the middle of Frozen Two. But, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I look forward to having that movie memorized within a week. Like like script like word for word every single line of every song every every spoken word um, it's coming. There are worse things. There are worse things, but not too many more. <laughs> right. So uh, it could be trolls. Th- that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, so as we're talking about quarantine, uh, we should mention that the reason why we're having this conversation is because of a guy who you know was quarantined for three days, but then left that quarantine, was able to to manage to arise out of that quarantine. Hopefully we someday will be able to arise out of our quarantine, uh, but I think it will be longer than three days. Uh, and that person is Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk a little bit about, that was a very youth pastor thing of me to just say. <laughs> that, that, whole, that was great, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about the resurrection, right? So as is a custom almost regularly, at this time of year, around Easter, around Holy Week, we start having these conversations about the resurrection. Uh, specifically, whether or not the resurrection is this more metaphorical or existential event, or is it this literal, physical event that actually happened in history. Um, and there's a fairly, at least on Twitter, a fairly, uh, a, a fairly vitriol and, and even just a, a really upsetting debate that happens among different communities of a variety of those inf- interpretations. Um, so anyway, we're going to have a conversation about the resurrection. And um, I, I think you two represent kind of a one particular understanding of the resurrection. Um, but I want to, I want all of us to be able to sort of talk about why this is a, is a thing that really captures the imagination of people where we actually kind of duke it out over what should be this like really important Christian, um, this Christian, uh, holiday for us, but we end up duking it out on Twitter anyway. So like, why, why does it matter so much to people? Uh, how has that happened? Like how, how have different interpretations evolved to the point where there are like pretty competing views, that sort of thing. So, uh, with that said, we're going to keep this pretty open-ended. Uh, so I, I want to start off with, with you, David Cogden. Um, when did you start kind of noticing that there are like these significantly differing interpretations of the resurrection and specifically maybe on Twitter and how, wh- why have there 
these debates been uh how have these debates kind of arose over pun intended arose over the last several years especially on twitter well i mean i'm going to date myself a little bit i'm a bit older than both of you and so from my experience uh predates twitter in terms of experiencing the vitriol uh, around this debate i mean they had it at princeton too (laughs) right exactly (laughs) i um I mean, I'm coming at this from a slightly different perspective because you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a card carrying Boltmanian, you know, and so I, you know, I defend a person who is uh, put on a heresy trial for his own uh, views on the resurrection and Easter, um, and I tend to I share his views, so I have a I have a stake in that argument, and um, I'm not you know, I'm not ashamed about that, but it does mean that. I interpret a lot of these, I hear a lot of these things in a different light. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I suppose it goes, I'm not really sure about when the Twitter conversation got going, I guess is whenever um, traditionalist Anglican Twitter got, got really up and up and running full speed, I suppose. I I mean, I I tend to associate it with that crowd um, partly because that's the crowd I tend to see uh, mm-hmm. engaging in. I don't see a certain more fundamentalist uh, crowd on Twitter. I don't know if they even care, but um, I, you know, it's, I tend to interact with a certain, uh, what I would call post-liberal or um, uh, retrievalist uh, uh, Christianity um, that tends to uh, really emphasize the creeds, really emphasize high liturgy and orthodox doctrine. Uh, and they often tend to connect that to a, a more leftist politics, which makes them this kind of interesting hybrid of conservative doctrine and 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 more leftist um, progressive political uh, views. Um, and I, I so I'm not really sure where that began. It's probably it's been at least several years, but mm-hmm. uh, it definitely. For me, I, I, I hear it in terms of this long-standing argument. You know, I'm, I'm writing um, some pieces right now regarding Barton Boltman's debate over, the, over Easter and Resurrection, which uh, kind of, uh, it became public and pretty outspoken in the late 40s, early 50s. And that's, you know, a lot of the ongoing contemporary conversation about this topic goes back to that dispute when the demythologizing stuff exploded onto mm-hmm. the front page of you know newspapers and media outlets at the time um <clears throat> of course it predate that too but that's certainly for me the perspective within which i engage this conversation um i don't know david roberts what your perspective is on that but um yeah so i've actually got a date an exact date mm-hmm. when i when I first became aware, at least from a social media perspective, that this was going on. And that date is March 27th, 2016. Mm. Uh, on that date, David Congdon, who's here with us, posted on Facebook, time for my annual Boltmanian liturgy, which <laughs> goes like this. Christ is risen in faith. Christ is risen in faith indeed. Alleluia. To which someone, and I won't name them, but someone who is more of that post-liberal persuasion that David is describing, you know, kind of juxtaposing that kind of more creedal, retrievalist approach to doctrine and and dogma. Um, I I don't know this person's politics, but I assume kind of maybe falls into that kind of more uh, leftist or progressive political persuasion, um, responded lovingly, uh, but sort of patronizingly, oh, David. Uh, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And it would be a couple months later that David Congdon and I uh, would strike up a correspondence. Um, I was uh, reading through his uh, large tome on Rudolf Bultmann, uh, Mission of Demythologizing. And uh, later that year, uh, his book, The God Who Saves, would be released. And uh, he and I would begin corresponding as I was reading through that and just kind of trying to wrap my head around where he was going from. But uh, but no, it was that Boltmanian uh, Easter liturgy that first kind of opened my eyes to, wait a second, there are some pretty clear dividing lines. Um, I was only just starting to wrap my head around uh, the Boltmanian perspective, kind of dialectical theology uh, more broadly. And 
I will admit that probably back in 2016, even though I didn't necessarily have a firm, you know, kind of foot in either camp on this, uh, I probably definitely found uh, David's liturgy and and the explanation of it probably a little unsettling. Um, I uh, I had kind of been educating myself kind of through uh, the theolog uh, the theology blogosphere. Uh, David was blogging more regularly back then. David Congdon, uh, his uh, his theologically conjoined twin Travis McMakin, uh, still blogs uh, with some frequency, but was much more frequent back then, and so. I was kind of uh, drinking from the fire hose of uh, German idealism and 20th century German uh, theology. And so it was all kind of unsettling at the time. Fast forward to now. Um, yeah, like Mason said, I am probably more in David's camp on this. I might not go quite as far dogmatically. I might say I'm agnostic towards maybe the position of the retrievalists. But what I will say personally is this more... Um, I'll call it an existential apocalyptic and in the way David means apocalyptic um, approach to the resurrection. The way, the reason that I would maybe find myself more in that camp is because that interpretation uh, has been far more life-giving for lack of a better way of framing it, um, you know, in my own faith and spiritual journey uh, than however many years of the more traditional creedal approach to the resurrection was. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not necessarily here to, um, you know, stomp all over the uh, the uh, the uh, received faith of anyone on Twitter, but I do find myself a bit bemused about the vitriol and the level of hand wringing that goes into this. Because, at the very least, I think my argument towards to the creedalists, uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but towards the creedalists would be, at the very least explore this other side because you can maybe want to hold on to hold on to you know kind of what you're walking into this conversation with but i think there's a lot a lot of valuable um insights and and wisdom to be gleaned from uh hearing what us uh Baltmanians and otherwise have to say on this or at least i that's been my experience it's mm -hmm. been it's been a really uh it's been a kind of a boon to uh, explore this approach to the resurrection mm -hmm. I mean, you have a better memory of this than I do, <laughs> which is impressive. <laughs> I, I, I have, I don't, I had forgotten about that liturgy from Facebook. Um, but you're right. I mean, that definitely, that might have been for me also. Seeing the reaction to that uh, was an, in, you know, instant, I guess, an indication of what was to come. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, in terms of the Twitter conversation, it really exploded last year with Nicholas Kristof's interview with Serene Jones, mm -hmm. and that piece in the New York Times when that came out. I, while I probably was aware of conversations on social media and Twitter about this before that, certainly from the Facebook post, I had a little bit of interaction. The level of what I saw last year was quite different. You know, it was a, a, a very, it was a marked increase in conversation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. anger that led to a lot of people. I mean, she had to respond to it and it was a lot of you know was a lot of uh, quite a, quite a level of, of uproar about it um and yeah I, I so i guess um perhaps that that speaks to my own kind of just um avoidance of the conversation uh but it is that, that was last year was quite shocking to me um because i thought her answers to the questions that christoph asked were quite quite good and were profound and were thoughtful and pastoral um so the, the outrage about it uh, really took me aback. Rebecca Henry puts her shoes on different from me this I know and when she's angry Rebecca Henry she grits her teeth to let it show Rebecca Henry In addition, it was surprising as if there were a lot of people who were shocked by the way a person who is the leader of Union Theological Seminary responded. Like, 
it, it was just baffling to me that we would even think twice that Union, the, the leader of Union, would have any other theological position. Like, I would have been far more shocked if she had the quote unquote more creedalist position in terms of the resurrection. Uh, so the fact that she spouted off exactly what we would expect her to was unsurprising. And I don't I, I still do not understand why this was met with such vitriol, considering the fact that she is the leader of Union Theological Seminary, arguably the think, most progressive well, seminary in American history. So clarify a question then. To piggyback off what Mason just said, and David, you could probably, well, actually, both of you could probably speak better to this uh, than I could. Um, were people genuinely surprised? I mean, I'm sure some people were, but like, is there, is there a sense in which, you know, blame it on, you know, the general dismissal of Boltmann that David Congdon, your work is trying to remedy, blame it on a certain, um, a certain, I don't know what the right word would be. Uh, a certain interpretation of Bart that has become kind of dominant in an unbalanced way in in American seminaries, or some combination of that and other things, is it is it could it be that like that genuinely was a shocking realization for people that the president of Union Theological Seminary would hold uh, to that sort of position? I mean, my theory about that is that people weren't necessarily shocked, or maybe maybe a few were, but that I think a lot of people who are in a more traditionalist position um, like would, would like places like union to remain quiet about their positions. Um, mm-hmm. They know they exist, but they prefer them to remain by themselves off in a corner where they don't have to trouble the waters of tradition and, and liturgy and all the rest. And so when somebody comes out, whether it's a Marcus Borg or whether it's, you know, a, John Dominic at Crossan, or whether it's, you know, anything like that, a Jesus seminar comes up or, you know, Serene Jones comes up in the New York times. I mean, they, it becomes an opportunity to publicly, you know, re- reprimand that mm-hmm. person or that group um, as a way to, you know, put them back in their place, push, push them back into the corner that they are allowed to exist in, but don't let them have a public, um, a public platform mm-hmm. from which to you know, broadcast their positions and their ideas. It, it felt very similar to farewelling Rob Bell, like where yeah. the, it was met as if, um, as if their particular position is the minority. And because of that, they have to defend it at all costs. And when there's some public figure who in a very public way expresses their disapproving position, then you have to farewell them. You have to farewell Rob Bell them or something, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It felt very similar in that regard. Maybe not to the extent that actually the farewelling of Rob Bell was, but uh, at least within our small Twitter community, it felt, to me, it really felt similar to that. I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, I think you're right about that. This was. Um... The, yeah, and I think the main difference is our experience of that was probably within an academic Twitter conversation, mm-hmm. um, whereas, you know, the, the Rob Bell, he had this evangelical credentials with Wheaton and the, and the rest, which um, brought the Pipers of the world uh, to bear on that situation. Um, but yeah, it, it is, I think from our vantage point, it, it was an analogous kind of case. And I think that's a fair comparison. Um, but I think maybe this is a step back for a moment. I just do want to make sure people understand what the positions are. So yeah, we, that's a good understand i mean it's because it's not necessarily crystal clear what those positions actually stand for um i mean i refer to the creatalist or the or the retrievalist position post-liberal position which are not necessarily all identical in their articulations of this but um for the most part they all take for granted that the language and the creed you know and, and the traditional doctrine of the bodily resurrection is literally whatever we mean by that true um that jesus was visibly raised but there is a difference among that camp regarding those who think that that can be uh that that we can find historical evidence for this there's an evidentialist posture there where it's 
like say like an NT write camp where we can say this is historically verifiable given the sources we have and it's it, it meets the criteria of truth, uh, historical veracity. Um, there's that side of it. Um, and then there's the more strictly post-liberal side, which is more Bardian, which says it cannot be proven. It's beyond the level of proof, but it it did actually happen in a bodily, historical, literal way. Uh, it just is. It's just it's supernatural enough that it's it escapes the criteria of verifiability. Um, but on the on the opposing side, there are also different positions. I mean, I think. Even somebody probably like Serene Jones and others in the union camp would criticize Boltmann, which they view as too crudely dismissive or too crudely uh, opposed to the tradition. Um, this is like Christopher Morse in his book on the difference heaven makes, um, kind of has this typology of positions on heaven or resurrection or anything like that. And um, and he he rejects the traditionalist position as someone at union would. Um, but he also rejects Boltmann um, for being too dismissive or, uh, uh, or you know, too opposed to the language of myth, the language of, you know, metaphysical, mythological talk. Um, so he likes Tillich. So Tillich is really, I think, the person who represents the union position and Serene Jones and those who are at, in, the, in that place where they like, they'll use mythological symbolic languages, they would put it, um, without holding to the traditional meaning of that language, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So um, Boltmann, he was just more, you know, if you don't actually believe what this language is referring to, then just use different language, you know, <laughs> just drop the myth entirely mm -hmm. uh, and fi find different concepts for it. And I, I tend to fall in that camp because I like to be clear in my theology, uh, but I do understand the the attractiveness of the Talikian posture of mm -hmm. using symbolic mythological language, but not necessarily meaning um, what it used to mean for people. Mm -hmm. But even even you know you and, and you alluded to this, uh, David. You talk about kind of the the retrievalists. You know how there's a spectrum. You know you differentiate between like NT rights and maybe the the post liberal Bardian position. But then even in the last six months or so. You know, we've seen uh, six to nine months, maybe, uh, you know, even amongst the bodily camp, if, if you could call it that, you know, you know, someone like David Bentley Hart goes, you know, full David Bentley Hart. And if you've ever read David Bentley Hart, you know what I mean by that on N.T. Wright for an overemphasis on the the bodily part of bodily, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and really leaning into, um, you know, this notion of of spiritual bodies and and, and reading you know First Corinthians yep. fifteen in a certain way, and and you know and David you and I have talked about this you know there's even some ambiguity in in heart as to is he is he straddling the um, is he straddling kind of the retrievalist position with something novel or or not necessarily novel but kind of maybe more akin to you know his orthodox roots. Is he doing something akin to what you're uh, describing, um, you know, the union camp doing, not necessarily coming from that trajectory, but um, but using mythological language knowingly, um, it can so, it can sort of be hard to tell because, you know, he'll make arguments, for example, uh, just to use him as an example, uh, in his New Testament translation, for example, that, um, you know, that, you know, maybe right up to the last moment could sort of kind of go hand in hand with an argument you might make from a Boltmanian demythologizing perspective. And then, but then he'll still use, you know, kind of the traditional mythological language. And so um, even within, even within what I think Mason, you're right to kind of differentiate between two broader camps, so to speak, there's a great deal of ambiguity such that I think it, you know, immediately sort of problematizes, you know, any attempt to, uh, kind of get in the huff over, um, you know, just to use the example we've been using over over like the interview that uh, Serene Jones did. Um, it's just really hard to, it, it, I guess it, 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 it's really hard to, especially from the perspective of someone who is probably going to be drawn to, um, you know, some sort of creedal or kind of traditional authority. Um, that's just that's just like a real a real shifty foundation. 
uh, to attempt to establish um, if, if, if you're using tradition uh, as your as your anchor there, mm -hmm. at least I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if Hart belongs in the traditional camp at all. I mean, I think uh, part of the confusion here is how much to bring in. I mean, he is very much an Eastern Orthodox in the classic ancient sense of Eastern Orthodoxy kind of theologian. And the, and the ancient Greek theologians are all over. I mean, they. I think you could put them in a traditional camp, but the things they do with this language is really can be quite bizarre. I mean, the whole anagogical interpretations of scripture they use to they find all these kinds of mystical symbolism in the Bible to to point to all kinds of other things that are not in the text that are, you know, are the meanings are behind the, the scriptures entirely to this deeper spiritual depth. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think Hart is sort of a, you know, I think he is as mysterious as some of those ancient theologians are um, in terms of what they actually mean. I mean, even the universalism book, um, I mean, he, he'll continually uses mythological language about you know, afterlife and the heavenly bliss and all the rest. But then he'll he'll ins insert phrases every once in a while saying, of course, we don't mean this, you know, literally in a crude sense. Or, of course, we don't want to kind of construe this in an anthropological or anthropocentric, uh, you know, whatever kind of way. Um, I mean, he does all the stuff in there. He has these little caveats. He kind of sneaks into his writing just to kind of get him off the hook from taking the stuff too literally. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there's the tradition is certainly flexible and weird enough to accommodate all kinds of positions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, I, I, I do think that's why it's important to, to place the current vitriol among about this topic in the context of the post-Boltmann and the whole Boltmannian conversation about this, because that is the reaction. I mean, people are reacting to that dispute as it played out. Um, uh, and, and not just Boltmann himself, but I mean, what he represents, you know, you know, David Friedrich Strauss and the folks from this whole modern period from Schleiermacher on really, um, and the whole modern liberal project of theology. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's kind of, it, it's anachronistic in some ways to try to figure out how, what does an origin or a Clement of Alexandria have to do with a contemporary dispute over uh, issues of historicity, which you know would be meaningless to them, um, and so it, it is complicated to figure out uh, uh, who who is in which camp, I suppose. Becca Henry doesn't see me, so I don't exist. So it's not just that these differing communities have a different method by which they get to their position in regards to the resurrection, but they have something more at stake within the telos of it or even in the transcendentness of the resurrection that really matters for them. Um, so maybe, for example, and you can disagree with this, but um, for those who hold maybe a more traditionalist view and you know correct me if i if i'm generalizing too much but for them it typically is that if the resurrection didn't happen literally then we're essentially ascribing a savior the the distinguish the the distinction of a savior onto a dead guy uh and maybe maybe it's more than that too but anyway th there seems to be something at stake for them that really matters for why each community holds the position that they do outside of the method by which they use to get to that particular position so um thoughts regarding that like what what do you think is at stake for each one of those communities and maybe there are multiple things at stake which is totally fine too but uh let's talk about that Yeah. Um, so, David, you could probably speak better to uh, the creedal camp or the retrievalist camp. Um, you could actually 
probably speak better to our camp as well. But um, but since I'm coming from our camp, I will I I'll, I'll speak kind of personally. Um, for me, it's kind of what preaches. I'm I'm a pastor. I'm I have a specific community that I am in charge of, uh, or at least one of the people in charge of of shepherding. Um, at least from an academic perspective, much of my own project, which you know, as we've discussed uh, on this podcast in the past, is deeply, deeply informed by David Congdon's work and, and by extension, Boltmann and, and uh, certain readings of Bart and so on. Um, but most of my own um, project has been uh, kind of with this notion of, um, of translation uh, as it pertains to mission and kind of understanding that not only in a kind of geographical slash ethnic context, like going from one like spatial uh, area to another, but also temporally across time and culture and so on and so forth. And so uh, both when I uh, consider my context in a sort of post or ex-evangelical space, for me, the stakes are like, what is meaningful to the people, you know, that I am, that I am shepherding or kind of walking alongside. And again, I can only speak contextually and from my own perspective, but um the uh, the kind of more literal traditionalist prose has not been life giving. It has not. Mm. Uh, my students don't have anything to do with it. Whereas when we start talking about this more um, existential or ontic, to use um, like that Boltmanian Heideggerian language, um, and obviously I don't necessarily use that exact language. But when, when it, conceptually, when I come at it from that uh, perspective. It's significantly more like, like all of a sudden there's something to talk about, especially with the students. All of a sudden they're like, okay, no, 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 I can understand, I can understand why this is meaningful, um, and it gives it gives the passion narrative, the you know the crucifixion, the resurrection narrative, uh, new life for them. You know, you, you know, prior to that, it's it's kind of just been this this story that they hear in Sunday school or on Easter, and all of a sudden it's something like, okay, that they can they can. Um, they can see themselves in the story a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, I think my motivation, both as I explore this, uh, you know, kind of for my own academic work, but then also pastorally is largely practical. It's, you know, does it preach? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds similar to just like, it, it makes sense, like the Boltmanian hermeneutic where the, what's actually inspired in scripture is the existential response that engenders uh, such a response, right? Like, so, you know, for, for your students, for example, the, the ways in which that they're existentially moved by the resurrection is what is inspired, God-breathed, if you will, uh, rather than the text itself, the words of the text or whatever, um, which may or may not be more the approach that the traditionalist camp would, would take, right? So, uh, yeah, Cognit, what, what are sort of your thoughts in regards to what's at stake for that more traditionalist, creedalist camp? There we go. <laughs> I think there are two main um, uh, issues at stake. There's the issue of the origin of Christianity, how did Christianity begin? And in that sense, like the off, often the argument I hear uh, as this kind of Boltmanian uh, interpreter is, well, if you hold that position, uh, how did Christianity ever arise? How did you, how did these people uh, find their inspiration to go out and uh, proclaim this gospel to the nations and all, all that? That's often the response I get. You know, why would you do that if you, if this man was still dead? Uh, is is claim, and um, I think there are. I mean, there are various kind of history of religion responses I could give to that. I think one that I I do I use in my work, which um, I think is important, is just because you don't believe that Jesus kind of walked out of this tomb and uh, was bodily kind of hanging out with these disciples, um, doesn't mean that they did not think Jesus was alive in a different sense. Mm-hmm. And some scholars I use, I use uh, in particular with one work of scholarship on this particular point, that um, it's quite 
probable that the disciples of the early 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 Christian community had a visionary encounter with Christ. This kind of they 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 experienced something visionary, um, and visions were taken to be as real as anything else um, in that cultural time period. And so, I think it's there are other explanations for that besides it's either this or it's that. Um, and so, like the origins of Christianity could be explained in other ways if you need something dramatic like that as a as a kind of a you know instigating catalyst for the religion um but that that aside i mean the other point um is uh i mean i think david pointed out is the issue of the, you know preaching i think the, the well there's the concern about i mean they would say the on the opposite side that the story of the traditional creedal position is what really preaches of course yeah, that's the, the more liberating message. Um, but uh, but regarding the creedalist retrievalist camp, um, the because a lot of those folks are Episcopalian or Anglican, um, and they, and their their polity and their theology and their liturgy is bound very very you know explicitly and implicitly to the creeds. Uh, I think what's at stake for a lot of them is if you deny this kind of hinge point of the creed, you lose that ecclesial glue mm -hmm. that that retains the structure that makes the structure work. So there is an ecclesiastical polity issue mm -hmm. that comes out uh, at this at this point. It's very Catholic, even. It is certainly, although I mean the Catholics have an advantage here insofar as it's not bound to any particular doctrine to hold them together. Right, uh, they're held together by virtue of simply having a magisterium and having this, uh, having a pope. Um, so you know, uh, almost almost the actual interpretation of the doctrines is is less relevant there, mm -hmm. which is a, a freedom that the Anglicans don't have mm -hmm. um, insofar as they are bound to that creed as being that's the one thing that holds it together. Mm -hmm. Oh. I say that I say that as a card-carrying Episcopalian. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to deny my own stake in that conversation. Um, I am, I am, uh, I have affiliated with the Episcopal Church, uh, though they may not want me. Um, <laughs> that is, that is my uh, ecclesial home. But uh, only because Sufyan's your actual pope. <laughs> that, that's fair. <laughs> Today, I have Sean Della Croce. And Sean, you kind of have this like indie, folky, just wonderful sound. Uh, I don't know exactly how you would uh, define yourself um, in terms of a genre, but um, I really like your sound. You're an incredibly talented musician. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your latest release from last year, going back last year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what what were some of the things that were stirring up maybe in your life or maybe things you were reading or maybe things you were listening to that had a lot of inspiration for this this last album? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, the the most recent album, Illuminations, came out. It's just coming up on like a year now, which is crazy to think, but it's my first uh, full-length studio album. Mm. So uh, many of the songs on the record were written years before. Um, and I'd ended up being kind of a, a curation of, of tunes uh, across like the span of my late teen years and early 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, I made it after I graduated college. Um, so yeah, it ended up being kind of a selection from that time period. But the themes involved, I mean, there's 
there's definitely, you know, a little bit of like a religious element you can mm-hmm. pick up uh, sort of subtly. And those would be like, you know, I went to a Catholic high school, Catholic mm-hmm. grade school. So I was coming out of that background uh, in some of the songs. And then I went to Belmont University in Nashville. And so, I mean, a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of, you know, love songs and you know songs about identity and things of that of that nature but i'm glad you called it indie folk because lately that's been the thing that mm-hmm. i've identified with most so yeah. I'm gl- i've i feel i feel glad that you connected that uh, do you kind of have that diy approach of like creating everything for yourself so not only creating the music but also creating the visuals uh maybe even being the person that's booking your tours, all of that kind of stuff. Do you take kind of a DIY approach? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was joking with somebody the other day that I learned to code for my website, <laughs> which is, is sort of true and not actually fully true. Uh, Cause people who can actually code would probably laugh. Yeah. But, scoff um, at your ability. Uh, or something yeah, like that. I get precisely. it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the internet is such an amazing tool and it can be really overwhelming uh, to be an independent artist these days. But a huge benefit is that I, I mean, if you have uh, a smartphone, you really can like be your own photographer, launch a website, distribute music and connect with a fan base like on your phone. I don't know if I would like recommend ideally to be doing that completely on your phone, but mm-hmm. anybody can can do it right now and so yeah i mean if if uh yeah i i I lost my track of train of thought there but um but yeah basically i i enjoy the diy approach Mm -hmm. and you know having a resource like a phone and a computer (laughs) like you can get a lot done and so yeah exactly that's awesome yeah, I mean, it's probably similar to a podcast, right? Like anybody with a Wi-Fi connection and uh, a decent mic can, you know, broadcast their voice all around the world. It's Absolutely. Just really and the beauty of that really is that hopefully, ideally, it is it democratizes the format, you know, mm-hmm. that if if your ideas break through and if they're connecting, there's really only so much finesse you have to have in terms of PR or mm-hmm. something. If If it's good and people are able to find it, uh, then yeah, your only job is to get it in front of a potential audience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is daunting, but it's really exciting. And if people, you know, like the music or they like the podcast, uh, then you're, you're in luck. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. So, uh, you mentioned that there, there's some new music that will be coming. Um, are there any other projects that you're kind of working on right now? Maybe there's a, a tour at some point, uh, you know, post COVID. I know, that you're right? On. Like, is there is there anything kind of at least in, in the next year that you're planning on doing with your music? Yeah, we were kind of in the midst of a radio tour when when things started to change pretty rapidly here, mm-hmm. and we had some some dates booked coming up. But I, I don't even know if I should mention it because I I doubt I don't know if they will end up happening. So. Uh, yeah, for now, definitely just hunkering down in recording and writing mode. And then I also have like a really fun project with a friend of mine named Emily Arrow, who's a children's musician. Mm. And she and I have been buddies and collaborators this last year. And we're working on a little record that we're going to try to put together, maybe even remotely for the time being. Uh, and uh, yeah, that project is called Hey Friend. Mm. And I love children's music so much. I think it's, I think it's like can be pretty revolutionary and it's totally underestimated. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm doing my own stuff. I'll be putting out lyric videos and as much as I can on, on social media and stuff. And then, uh, uh, on top of that, I'm working on this Hey Friend project. Perfect. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. Well, Sean, I, I really enjoyed the music. Uh, you're incredibly talented and, um, yeah, like I love the DIY approach. Uh, and again, I, I I think your music is incredibly beautiful. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you so much, Mason. I really appreciate it. Doesn't see me, so I don't exist.
Where, where do you think that we should go from here, right? So this has been a, a topic of conversation around Easter time the last couple of years, especially uh, on Twitter. Where, where do you think both of these camps can sort of go? Like, do, do you feel like we sort of take like a separatist approach and just like not engage it at all? Do you think there's a way in which we can engage with one another regarding the resurrection that's that's helpful, uh, where it doesn't feel um, imperial, where one is trying to uh, overtake the other's position? Where do you think we can kind of go moving forward um, at, you know, as we enter into the Easter season and as we enter into Holy Week and eventually Easter Sunday? Uh, well, I'll just say briefly, I would like if at the very bare minimum, we can just all agree that no one position has an exclusive <laughs> uh, claim on being the most, being the only one that's, that's liberating and the only one that preaches, the only one that has any sort of theological basis, anyone, only, only one that has any sort of biblical grounding. I mean, it's a lot of the onlys that for mm-hmm. me really push me over the edge of regarding this conversation because it, it tends to be this zero sum argument where, you know, the, the response to say this more, more liberal position is only holding to this traditional creedal literalist account can get you A, B, C, or D, whatever those things are. And I just want that language, that rhetoric to stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about you, Dave Rob? I mean, my, my answer was going to be a little more uh, facetious. I was going to suggest <laughs> that we, we publish a Resurrection Two Views uh, book. <laughs> uh, we could get uh, someone who I'm going to refer to as uh, Parsnip Sparkles. Uh, he could edit it. He could edit a lot of Does these he have volumes. like a little do- doodle drawing as his avatar? Uh, no comments. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It just seems like something he's done before. And <laughs> and uh, David Congdon, I would nominate you for the uh, heretical position. And um, <laughs> I, would, I would let them choose their own champion. And, uh, and we could duke it out in the pages of... Um, I don't know who would publish this Brazos like, <laughs> um, but more seriously, um, I don't know. I think, I think, and I, I don't, I don't want to take us too far afield here, but I do think to some degree, the answer to this question gets to our previous conversation as far as where's the church kind of more broadly going from here, mm-hmm. you know, um, for anyone who missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the two-part episode. Um, we talked about kind of more the future of the sort of progressive post-evangelical movement, but we talked a lot about the mainline as well. And, you know, the mainline has been well-documented as, you know, kind of just having this kind of perpetual near century-long um, decline, numerically at least. Um, but we're also now finding out that that's just, church in the United States, church in the world, or at least mm-hmm. in the first world, uh, at least in the Western uh, world, uh, that's happening. Um, you know, and the last time we debated the merits of, of kind of this progressive evangelical post or ex-evangelical, whatever you want to call it. But I do think those trajectories are really tied more broadly into this conversations and other conversations that kind of roll, run parallel to it, conversations related to the afterlife, supernaturalism, you know, approaches to scripture and so on and so forth. And so uh, to some degree, I think I'm going to kind of be vague here, but my answer is going to be kind of dependent on what is the next decade or two of, I guess, ecclesiology look like in the West or in the United States. Um, if we continue to kind of see, if we continue to see kind of decline on the mainline part and um and maybe a sort of amorphous kind of lack of sustainable foundation on the um, kind of more post-evangelical side, then I actually think you're going to increasingly see people on one hand exploring the position that David and I are talking about on the one hand, and then those in the other camp. It makes sense to me that they're going to be increasingly rigid and dogmatic about, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of holding on to the things that they think are all that's keeping this, christian project together mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i guess i guess that's a pessimistic take depending <laughs> on what you want to happen here but um 
I'm not sure I necessarily see some sort of unity ticket arising from uh, our kind of our, our present reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. I'll, I mean, I will just I just ahead. want to add just that. Um, I mean, I think you're right about this being kind of t tethered to the issue of our ecclesial future, but I also think it's tethered to the culture war more broadly in the in the sense that you know it there. I think I think it is interesting that the people involved in this dispute are those who tend to be more on the left politically, but on the right doctrinally, because, and I understand what they're trying to do in some ways. They're trying to carve out that space that doesn't associate leftist politics with being liberal theologically, um, which is often the argument used by the conservative, the full-on conservatives, that if you embrace a leftist politics, you can also lose the Bible, lose the creed, mm -hmm. lose all the rest. So I, I get there's an apologetic there among some of them that look, they're sh trying to show there's a third way here. You can, we can embrace a leftist politics. Sound a little Richard Rorian is what that sounds like from them. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and I, I don't want to dismiss that entirely because I, I do, understand the impulse behind that kind of apologetic that attempt to carve out that third way so to speak um i just don't share it i think there's some problems with it but i do get the attempt to counter that argument from the right mm -hmm. i totally agree i'll just leave uh my, my little two bits here uh really briefly uh and it's probably more homiletic than it is theological but um in terms of the the resurrection, I, I once heard Doug Paget, which you both know, um, he 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 wrote a book on the Gospel of John recently and about the the seven signs in the Gospel of John, and he talks about the Lazarus story in particular, and he mentions about you you know if if Lazarus just got up and went out and just went back to his old life, that wouldn't be a story about resurrection. That'd be a re story about re resuscitation. And and so that like differentiation between resuscitation and resurrection, I think is again, this might be more homiletical than it is theological, but feels really apparent and very pronounced in this conversation. Where if we really care so deeply about the bodily resurrection that that is the only thing that matters within this event, then it's just a resuscitation is all that is. There's something more existentially moving. There's something, if you will, even spiritually moving, where if this event captures you in a certain way, that's where the resurrection happens. Then it's a resurrection event, not a resuscitation event. So anyway, that might be just my little like soapbox sermon. Maybe not all that theological, but I think it is maybe an important distinction to make between those two. And it's been a really helpful way to think for me to be able to think about the resurrection and as the impending and inevitable conversation will happen in a few weeks uh, for me to be able to sort of think about it in that way, in that light. So thank you too for, for uh, joining me. Super great. Before we leave David, uh, both Davids, can you talk a little bit about where people can find you if, uh, if they haven't already? You can find me on Twitter uh, as usual on DW Congdon. Um, you can find me also on my website at dwcongdon.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, I think, drob87 is my handle. Um, on Facebook, I think the best way to find me is through my church, Watershed. And per this topic, I'll just kind of give a shameless plug. So we're using the uh, this uh, coronavirus quarantine as an opportunity to host digitally all of the uh, all the speakers who we could never afford to bring in literally. And so. <laughs> Um, our lineup over the next couple of weeks includes uh, Rob Bell this Sunday, uh, Austin Channing Brown the following week, um, and I don't know when this is going to get posted, so some of this might be past tense by the time it by the time it goes live. But uh, Mike McCarg, Science Mike, after that, uh, then Andre Henry, uh, and then mm -hmm. Pete Rollins. And one of the questions we're going to be asking all of them, this is where it ties into this conversation, is uh, is what does resurrection mean to you? now mm -hmm. and so uh i will have um maybe if we wanted to have like a an addendum or a or a an after party to the conversation after the inevitable bloodbath that happens in a few weeks um <laughs> i will be able to uh you know kind of 
kind of put a little a little a little flag or a little cap on this conversation by being able to tell you what a few more people might think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on this particular topic. So. Did your church ask you for a pay cut recently? Like what in the world? Like how are they even even if they're only zooming them in, how are you able to afford this? I haven't asked. I don't want to know. <laughs> um, I'm just saying like your paycheck might not be as hefty as it used to be. <laughs> it is not hefty to begin with. So that's, that's true. Well, it might be even getting lighter. So thank you so much, guys. You're all really wonderful. Um, I look forward to mo- many more conversations regarding not only the resurrection, but theology in general. Thanks, Mason. Thanks. If you'd like to connect with David Cogden, David Roberts, and Sean Della Croce and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. I've never seen.